Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me today is Marcus Bascuglia, the founder of Alberti Partners. Our title for this podcast, Latin American Politics, Navigating the Rapids. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of top quality independent research and alternative data providers from across the world, both micro and macro. Some are stock specific, some sector specific, some country specific, many are global, all are investment related. Latin American politics are often complex and difficult to understand, let alone predict. This decade, so far, has been no different. From Mexico to Argentina, there are political and economic developments that could shape the future of Latin America for years ahead. Marcus Bascaglia founded Alberti Partners in 2016 to provide economic, political and market research services on Latin American countries for institutional investors and corporations. The Alberti Partners team share in the decision processes of their clients with close interactions. They produce a combination of deep macro and political analysis with detailed number crunching, including the use of econometric models. The Alberti Partners consultancy service offers a detailed coverage of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia and Peru, as well as the small Latins, including Bolivia, Ecuador, Paraguay and Uruguay. There is also some coverage of Mexico for certain clients. Marcus, welcome. Let's start with a short introduction to the service that is provided by Alberti Partners to your various clients. Thank you, David, and thank you, RF, for organizing this. Um, well, uh, basically, um, Alberti has been um, for almost eight, eight years now uh, running um, and, and I think that one, one of our key advantages is that we combine economic and political analysis, which is very, very important in the region. I, we, I'm partnering with Patricio Navia, a Chilean political analyst, is top notch. And, and our, so our weeklies, we, we have one weekly of Argentina and one weekly of the rest of Latin America, which is the last one is on a rotational basis. So we write, let's say, one week about Brazil, one week about, about Chile, one week about uh, Colombia and Peru together, and one week about um, the, the, the small Latins, what we call the small Latins, Bolivia, Ecuador, etc. We combine politics and economics at the same time. And I think that's key in a region in which the, the institutional framework is so weak that understanding the political process is very important for the economic process and then for make, to make investment decisions. All our research is written in English. Uh, you know, we have been... Um, you know, I have been doing this um, before at Citibank and then and, and Bank of America for, for more than uh, two decades now. And, and um, basically, again, I think that our, our key advantage is the combination of politics and economics in a region in which, uh, you know, that combination is so important. Starting with Brazil, where President Lula da Silva returned to power at the beginning of 2023, Given what Lula has achieved so far, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic about the outlook for Brazil? We are, we are relatively optimistic on Brazil um, in the sense that if you look at the, the new batch of leftist um, 
you know, uh, presidents in, in, in Latin America, which include Chiles Boric, uh, you know, Colombia's Petro, and, you know, um, Mexico's López Obrador. You know, basically, Lula has shown to be the most pragmatic one. I mean, Lula, in the international arena, he, he looks very, um, like, somewhat more ex extremist and more, you know, uh, to the left of the political spectrum, sometimes aligning, for instance, with Vladimir Putin. But we think that that's mostly to give something to Lula's constituency. In the domestic front, Lula has basically... Uh, you know, aligned with the what is called in Brazil the Central, this centrist caucus in, in the Congress, which is very strong. And the domestic agenda has not been, uh, you know, bad in the sense that, for instance, Congress is advancing in the approval of a tax reform that, David, you know, I have been reading about this tax reform since I started, you know, uh, you know reading and covering Brazil in 1993. That is basically simplifying the tax system uh, from five taxes to two taxes, you know, which will basically reduce the tax burden, uh, the, the tax, you know, not, not, the, not the tax rate, but the, the burden, you know, of complying with taxes and the, and the complication of the system significantly. That's advancing in Congress. Then the Congress already passed a new, um, you know, debt, um, debt sustainability framework, which I, I will elaborate a little bit on that. And, and, and also, after, you know, coming and, and going, but at the end of the day, Lula didn't change the, um, the inflation target of the central bank, although it has been putting a lot of pressure for it to, to cut rates. So Lula has, has shown, again, a, a, a pragmatic leader, you know, knowing that he doesn't command, uh, you know, um, a majority in Congress. And so to, to implement reforms, he, he needs that. Um, help of the central, the centrist bloc in the Congress, and that means that the reforms are overall centrist. What is the cost of that? The cost, you know, the, the cost is, is that that comes at a, at a price tag. I mean, you need to buy, and I'm not talking about corruption, but you need to buy the central, you know, and that has implied that at the end of the day, fiscal policy has not been good. You know, fiscal spending has expanded briskly this year, and then, you know, the, basically the, the new uh, fiscal rule, which requires a primary balance next year in terms of GDP, the primary deficit will be around 1% of GDP in 2023. The fiscal rule requires a fiscal balance next year with a minus, uh, plus minus, you know, 0.25 of GDP, you know, uh, band. And the, and the government, including Lula, ha have been conveying very, you know, recently that at the government is not gonna not, not gonna get there. So it's like a fiscal rule that is dead on arrival, you know. So basically, that means that you know, yes, he has been pragmatic, but that has a cost. The cost is a fiscal cost, and and it's a it's a country that requires to balance, you know, its its debt over time. It it, it requires a primary surplus of probably one percent of GDP or more. And, and it's still in deficit and it's not going to get to balance next year. So that's the cost. And that has an implication in monetary policy. You know, after Lula's declaration on the week of, um, you know, at the end of October, that conveying that the government will not comply, you know, with the, with the fiscal, that it will not make high sacrifices to comply with the fiscal target next year. You know, the consensus already changed, you know, its expectation for monetary, the monetary policy rate 
at the end of 2024 from 9% to 9.25%. So that means that given that the central bank is independent and, and that it, it is, um, you know, it's a central bank that is very committed so far to comply with the, with inflation targets, that is a very serious and, and competent central bank, that means that a looser fiscal policy requires a tighter monetary policy, all it equals to, you know, bring inflation down. And that's the cost that the Lula, you know, that this mix of a pragmatic Lula, but de- that needs to, you know, keep public spending uh, strong to, to stay popular and to and to buy the, this uh, centrist coalition has um, on, the, on the economy. How do you see economic growth and inflation shaping up in 2024? Well, that's a very good question. It, it, growth surprise. Uh, twice, uh, both in 2022 and 2023, on the upside. In 2022, we were, you know, it didn't surprise us. It, it surprised the consensus. Uh, in in 2023, it surprised everyone. And and honestly, it was easy, you know, with with the benefit of hindsight, it was easy to see why the harvest was very good. I mean, whether remember this, uh, you know, these economies are are still, um, you know, mostly. The, the importance of the of commodity produ- production is very is, is high, and then uh, this twenty twenty three harvest was very very strong, and that meant that the growth at the beginning of the year was very high, much higher than expected, and so growth will end up you know close to um, you know you know in our forecast two point seven percent you know between two point five and three percent during the year right very strong this year next year. The consensus is forecasting, you know, somewhat close to to one point five percent. We we expect something um, uh, uh, slower. We we predict that it will slow down uh, for for several reasons. We, for to to less than one percent actually. First is that now with El Nino, you know, right? The Nino is this, you know, weather, you know, phenomenon. The har- we expect the harvest to take a hit. So. It will not drop significantly, but it will not grow, right? And so that's the first hit. The second hit is related to the fact that we expect monetary policy to be tighter than what we expected, you know, a few months ago. So, so basically, remember, monetary policy rates are going to be near nine percent uh, in at the end of 2024. So that's a very tight monetary policy with with ex ante policy rates above 5% during, during the whole uh, year. So inflation will come down. Inflation has been re- relatively well, well behaved um, in, in Brazil, and, and it's going to continue dropping in, in 20, 2024. Um, to, to, it's going to be inside the target band. So, so that's not the biggest problem because, again, the central bank is doing a good job in bringing inflation down. It has been a very hawkish central bank, as you probably know. It was one of the first central banks to hike in the, in the world. Um, you know, when inflation started to go up, it, it had a very, um, you know, it hiked rates, you know, significantly. It was one of the central banks that hiked the most in the world. And now it's in a position to be cutting rates, right? And, and at the same time, inflation coming down. Turning to developments in Chile, President Gabriel Boric is facing a referendum on a new constitution on December the 17th. Opinion polls suggest that a reject option will have a significant majority. What are the political and economic implications of a reject vote win or an approved vote win? Yes. Let me recap a little bit on the process because it's important to understand. Chileans have been trying to, 
you know, there was a discussion about changing the constitution, the 1980 constitution for, for a long time. Not because they have not changed it. The constitution had more than 50, you know, amendments already, but it was still, and you know, the constitution uh, originally drawn or, you know, or basically brought by Pinochet. So the, the, the Chileans want to change that constitution. And, it, you know, the, the first constitution reform process came after the, the social, you know, problems that Chile faced in October 2019. And, and the first constitutional convention was, um, after that, that process was uh, very, veered highly to the left. You know, I would say that it was to the left of the medium Chilean voter, the constitutional convention members. And it drafted a constitution that, you know, was much to the left, again, to the, of the political spectrum of the, of the median uh, Chilean voter. And so it got rejected. You know, and it was one of the it was one of the things that President Boric was pushing for to approve that constitution. So basically, that left him already, you know, somewhat of a lame duck, you know, in 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 his in his government because one of his key uh, agendas was approving the constitution because all the other plans that he had for the economy were based on things that were in the constitution that allowed him to move quickly in the reforms that he wanted, you know, tax reform, pension reform, labor reform. So he became like a lame duck. There was a new vote. And now the vote, you know, of the new constitutional convention, we, we call that it, it, it is um, a much more, uh, I would say, guided process, a, a process that, you know, from the very beginning could, could move under, a, you know, a, a, between a, a very well-defined uh, 12 or 14, I don't remember now, point uh, agreement, you know, the vote veered to the right. And I would say that, you know, the, the 50 member um, chamber that uh, had to approve, that, that, that already approved a few days ago, this, this new draft was to the right of the median Chilean voter, right? And so in as much as the, the first constitutional reform attempt contained provisions that were you know, uh, like like giving um, indigenous people, you know, uh, too many rights in the view of the median Chilean voter. This one, this draft contains provisions that are are viewed uh, basically with, I would say, some some um, uh, lack of confidence from the median Chilean voter. Like, for instance, uh, lifting the tax on on property. That you know that 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 leaf would benefit the wealthier uh, Chileans. So it will get most likely rejected in in December. There is going to be a vote, a plebiscite in in December, and it's more likely to to get you know rejected. You know, basically, at, at least that's what polls are suggesting uh, now. So the, the constitutional process will not end there. You know, basically because Chilean wants still to change the constitution, but. Let's look at the practical implications of this. You know, the, the president had an agenda, right? And the agenda was uh, basically, again, to introduce reforms to the pension system, to the tax system, to the labor market. And those reforms are not advancing. You know, they're not advancing in Congress. Now, you know, you have the vote in December for the new constitution. And then now Congress is debating the budget, the 2024 budget. So at the end of the day, we'll get into 2024 without a constitution and without the reforms and with a president that is probably, you know, again, a, a lame duck. 
So this is to be continued. It's a very open process, you know, where, where it's it's difficult to uh, to to get to compromise to compromise between the you know left and the right in Chile. And so I think it's the uncertainty will continue, and that is not not good for growth. And that's the problem. The problem is that at the end of the day, you look at Chile now, and it's an economy that is you know barely growing. The average rate of growth in the last 10 years has been less than 2%. You know, that was, that is, you know, Chile used to be the high growth country in Latin America, and that is not anymore. This year, the economy is likely to contract a little bit in spite of the government implementing a big fiscal expansion program like in Brazil. So the way these governments are are basically substituting their lack of, you know, um, political capacity and, and delivery you know, of reforms is by expanding the fiscal deficit and, and fiscal spending. So the, 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 the growth in fiscal spending in the first nine months of the year in real terms was more than 10%. And the new budget contains an expansion of, of uh, fiscal spending in real terms, let's say adjusted, adjusted for inflation of uh, 3.5% for 2024. So the same as in Brazil, we have a very serious central bank in Chile, you know, the probably the strongest one, the, the one that has, you know, a better track record in the region, uh, the best track record in the, in the region. And so what happened is that when you look at the, at the monetary policy report enacted in September, they expected the expectation, the, the, the central bank board was conveying that it would cut rates of 150 basis points in the last two meetings of the year. And then in the in the previous meeting, uh, you know, uh, just a few days ago, instead of cutting 20, 75 basis points, it cut 50 basis points. The argument, you know, that many made was that, you know, they were fearing that the weakening of the peso, you know, against the US dollar would have an impact on inflation. But that looks a little bit odd to me because the pass through from, from the FX to prices in Chile is, is very low. In my opinion, what we said to our clients is we think they, they're likely to, you know, to slow down, you know, their, the pace of, of, of cuts uh, because, you know, fiscal policy has become laxer. Like, you know, again, we, we are in the same position as, as, as Brazil. So basically what that means is that we're, we're going to have a tighter monetary policy in Chile that compared to the to the case in which fiscal policy was more prudent and growth will be will be low you know will be slow next year as well why because monetary policy is going to be tight commodity prices are going nowhere and investment is not going to rebound in a chile in which still the rules of the game i mean the constitution are to be rewritten once again in ecuador daniel noboa became the country's youngest president in August at the age of 35. Does he have the capacity to tackle Ecuador's economic and security problems? Well, you know, imagine, David, that this guy has an 18-month term because remember that he comes to finish President Lasso's term. President Lasso was basically, you know, he was about to get kicked out by Congress uh, in a very, you know... Ecuador's political system is very fragmented, very political parties are, are very um, weak in Ecuador. And so, uh, you know, he was about to get kicked um, uh, by Congress and then he activated, you know, a, 
a constitutional clause that basically is like a nuclear bomb. Everybody gets, uh, you know, re-elect, goes to goes to election. But the the President Novoa's term that is going to begin in a few days, in a few weeks, you know, will last until May twenty fifth, May twenty twenty five, right? And the elections are going to be in February twenty twenty five. So let's say, David, for practical purposes, you know, the election cycle will start in the second half next year, right? So here we have a president that has, you know, for practical purposes to introduce reforms. He has six months and he has um, 14 seats. His party commands 14 seats in the 137 legislature. Yes, he can uh, basically, there are center-right, other center-right parliament members, assembly members. It's called Asamblea Nacional, the parliament. Um, he could get to 65 you know, counting all, all of them, it, assuming that they, they will behave as a block, you know, which is in, in systems with very weak parties, that's, that's a very important assumption. But the bottom line is, you know, he doesn't have a lot of time to introduce big reforms, you know. So basically, we, we think he will go more, for more like cosmetic changes, you know, not, not deep reforms, nothing that takes... You know, he cannot implement reforms that initially have a some imply a, imply a setback on the economy. You know, you cannot imply implement, in my opinion, you know, like a pension reform that implies, let's say, he was talking at some point of uh, lengthening, you know, like in France, the you know the the retirement age. You know, uh, well, you know, I doubt that will be the case because he has a very short time. He has to remain popular because we think he's going to try to run for president in 2025, you know. So basically, we think that the reforms are likely to be cosmetic, trying to address, you know, the the so, so, I mean, importantly, the security problems that Ecuador is facing now. He has very important security problems. So the reforms are going to be uh, cosmetic. And in the meantime, you know, as we already discussed with the case of uh, cases of Brazil and Chile, the thing at stake will be the budget. You know, the fiscal fiscal policy has not been great. You know, the Ecuador is under an IMF program, so it has some, you know, um, cage in which uh, he cannot move very much out of that cage, you know, um, embed, you know that, that an IMF program implies. Uh, but basically, um, you know, we, we again think that when a president has a short time, you know, he cannot implement a fiscal consolidation program and because he would become very unpopular and, and not be elected in 2025. So basically, you know, we'll be following very closely what happens with, with the fiscal numbers because we think there is a risk at the end of the day that to remain popular, you know, he doesn't implement any fiscal adjustment and on the contrary, you know, fiscal policy becomes, um, you know, an anchor. Turning next to Argentina, what are the potential implications for the economy at the second round of the presidential elections on the 18th of November. Yes, well, the presidential elections this year have been very unusual in a country in which things are very unusual, typically very unusual. So basically, Argentina has a system of primaries that are mandatory, and you don't have to register in any party. So you just go show up in the in the primaries, which have, you know, a... a in spite of being very high, you know, mandatory, they don't have high hundred participation rate, but they have this year the lowest 74, you know, participation rate close to 74%, and you vote for any candidate. And and basically what happened 
is that the, a new candidate called Javier Milei, a libertarian, self-identified a libertarian, but, but with some preoccupying, I would say, you know, worrisome uh, hints of, you know, some autocratic bend, I would say, uh, basically, uh, but promising to end with inflation. This is a country that will end with an inflation rate uh, north of 180 percent this in 2023, you know, to give you an idea. I, and, we, you know, Argentina has had um, high inflation for years now. So basically uh, a candidate, an, an out of system candidate promising to end inflation by dollarizing the economy and planning to cut, you know, fiscal spending and, and deregulating the economy and open the, the economy basically uh, ended first in that primary, in, in the August primary. Second came the candidate of the what was up to now the main opposition coalition, Conjunto por el Cambio, and, and third, but everyone very close between each other, the government candidate Sergio Massa, who happens to be the finance minister, you know, that is delivering inflation rates of, you know, 12, 10 to 12% per month uh, at this moment. And then, you know, from the primary to the general election, participation rate increased to 78%. And surprisingly, most of that participation rate increase came to the government candidate, who ended up first, you know, in, in the in the in the general election, right, with um, almost 37 percent to 30 percent of that uh, libertarian uh, newcomer, and those two will go to a second round election in on 19 November, right? Uh, so basically. The outcome of the election is highly unpredictable. Of course, the government candidate has um, the lead, you know, because he basically performed very well in the in the election. For some mysterious reason, he was able to convey to part of the population that the current mess, remember, he is the finance minister and a very powerful one. The president has all but disappeared now and everything is about the finance minister. You know, but that his all these economic ills are not um, his uh, made, but basically, um, and that his government will be different if he gets elected. So he has he has the lead. He has the you know he he's the one that has to lose the election. But it's not an impossible election to win also for um, you know the the libertarian candidate because at the end of the day. Most of the voters of the Juntos por el Cambio, you know, the up to now main opposition coalition, will will side probably with Javier Milei in the, in the second round election. So when you look at transition matrices, you know, from if you voted for X in the general election, who are you going to vote in the in the in the second round election? You know, it's a very tight race. So it's a very uncertain outcome, I would say. There are a couple of things that, anyways, when it's able to to see, you know, in this very uncertain environment in Argentina. And that is that whoever wins, he will have to make important adjustments to the economy. Why is that? Because Argentina is uh, under an IMF program. If you remember, Argentina received the biggest IMF package in the, in the history of the IMF in 2018. And the IMF was very lenient with this government, very, very lenient to a degree that it has allowed it to run such expansionist policies that it may win the election, you know? So basically the primary deficit should have been 1.9% of GDP this year, according to the program, it's likely to exceed, you know, 3% of GDP. 
and in the fourth quarter is running much higher than 3% of GDP, the government was supposed, the central bank was supposed to gain reserves this year, and basically it has lost $22 billion, almost reserves, international reserves, almost half this year to, to less than $22 billion now. So basically, you know, the IMF was very lenient with this government, but that is over. That is over because, you know, um, it's in a, a, these are unsustainable policies, and we think that the IMF will change its stance with Argentina the day after the election. And that means that whoever wins will have to implement a devaluation of the exchange rate, an important devaluation, and it will have to implement important fiscal adjustment because that's the only way to, you know, rain on inflation at the end of the day. You need to and to and to accumulate reserves because it's like a government, a country that has on a net basis negative reserves. The central bank owes most dollars than the dollars that it has in in, in its assets. So basically, you know, you need to accumulate reserves and you need to balance the budget because that's the, the that's why there is inflation in Argentina because that that budget is monetized by the central bank. So my take is that whoever wins, we're going to see big, you know, adjustment policies implemented in the coming years. And the second important thing that I I see for Argentina in the coming years is that whoever wins, Argentina's exchange rate is going to be weak. Now we have a very strong official exchange rate and a very weak parallel exchange rate. There's going to be a unification at some point because I think the IMF will demand that, will require that. And, and at the end of the day, I think that this unified exchange rate is going to be weak because Argentina needs to accumulate reserves. And for that, you need a weak exchange rate. Which other country in South or Central America looks most interesting to you? I think that... Um, at the end of the day, there, there are two other Andean countries that, that are running bad policies, that are Peru, you know, and Colombia. In the, the case of Colombia, it's, 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 it's very interesting because, you know, it's, it's a leftist president without a supporting Congress willing to implement, you know, very important reforms, you know, on the economy. But differently from Lula, he's not pragmatic. You know, he's basically hitting a wall every time, every day against, you know, his lack of majority in Congress. And hence, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Colombia, uh, you know, and he's running also, you know, very high fiscal deficit. So in our view, it's a country to be uh, to pay attention because the, you know, policies are not good, which means growth is low. You know, it's also likely to barely grow this year, right? And, and, and we have a president that has a very, um, you know, a radical agenda, but he's not pragmatic enough to moderate it. So, so and, and he's running a fiscal policy that is, you know, uh, unsustainable uh, with a high participation of foreign uh, investors in the domestic bond market. So my take is that something will have to yield in Colombia. Something will have to change. Either the president becomes more pragmatic or uh, at some point the foreign investors, which are already exiting the domestic market, will you know, um, accelerate that, that exit and that will imply um, you know, um, a sharpening of the crisis in, in Colombia. 
Marcus, many thanks for this very informative insight into the service that is provided by Alberti Partners. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss your views on some of the other Latin American countries. The Independent Research Forum is offering a brief trial to the Alberti Partners service and can provide details of how to subscribe to their full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with Marcus Bascoglia, the founder of Alberti Partners. Thank you, David.